Hello everyone and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee and talking about anything and everything. We may use explicit language and will almost certainly drop F-bombs, but none of that is the point or the drive of the content, so consider us PG-13. There will be rants and raves and occasional readings. There will be conflictive creative advice driven by at least three utterly disparate points of view. Your hosts today are web spider Dave Welsh, guest host Alice Cornwell, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 10, Instagram, Tumblr, and Snapchat. Oh my. So we started this and trying to think about how to talk about new ways to market, new content delivery systems for aspiring fanfic story writers and poets. And a lot of that immediately starts bringing up an entirely different concept, which is what demographic are you reaching? So we invited Alice. Welcome, Alice. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Um, Alice, for everybody, is in the early 20s demographic, as it were, so she is the next generation from uh, some of us, and how they access things is different. And we've talked about this, so why would somebody, let's just talk about it, why would somebody your age and your demographic access a story, and why would they choose that over a paper book? Pick your favorite. Uh, Well, there's a lot of different ways that people my age differ in how we, not only how we access content and relate to it, but also how we find our content. Um, A lot of people in my age tend to gravitate towards the fandom sphere and tend to read a lot of fan fiction more so than print books or newspapers. Um, There's a lot of a drive uh, for escapism, a lot of things where we're either researching things for our own work, our own uh, maybe school projects or our own interests, but also a lot of drive towards just trying to get away from the crushing weight of global warming and terrifying politics of one form or another. Yeah, let me just apologize on behalf of my generation tears right now. <laughs> Dave, Dave is technically at the end of the boomers, so he says, I'm very sorry. Or the beginning of the Gen Xers, take your pick. <laughs> Um, so there's definitely a lot of, uh, leeway and of course, no, I I can't speak for the entirety of my demographic. There's always going to be some people who access different things, but, um, a lot of us try end up connecting with things we see ourselves in, in one form or another, whether it's through motivations or through, uh, a more direct visible representation of, uh, who we are, who we represent. So can you um, say more about finding stuff? I mean, we're all on the web and we all, you know, find stuff by Googling it. That's just kind of what you do now. But I mean, I assume you're saying there's more to it than that. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of people I know, especially in uh, my age group, end up finding things through our favorite podcasters and YouTubers will be recommended to our favorite YouTubers podcast. And that get in turn recommends other people's podcasts. And that gets us to reading things that they've published. So you end up reading things through uh, somebody's blog, um, somebody that they'll promote. Maybe uh, I know a lot of my friends specifically read the McElroy family and brothers. And um, they've ended up reading a lot of their creative writing work through discovering their podcasts. I just wanted to say, uh, as we get to each one of these, YouTube, 96% of kids in America age 18 to 24 start there. 
And we are one of the bigger countries. It's also incredibly big in Russia, India, and China. So that was my uh, statistical demographic for YouTube. What do you mean by start there? <laughs> I, I mean that I, I went and looked up as she was talking about the different uh, areas at first when we were discussing getting this podcast together. Mm-hmm. So my question was, who uses it? How many people use it? What are their routes? YouTube really is one of the biggest channels of media. The so. whole world, yep. yeah. It's so, one of the big reasons why Google bought it. And that is definitely because of the way that Google analyzes everything that you look for on the internet. That's another way that a lot of us find our written content. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know a lot of people will find um, their preferred written content, especially in the fandom sphere, just by Googling the words of what they're looking for in very, very tight, specific terms found in the fandom sphere. Um, those of us who aren't reading in this fandom sphere, people who are looking for uh, published content, fiction or nonfiction, tend to get recommended by other people who are already reading in that sphere. It's not as much looking online as it is getting recommendations. But why would you look on, on YouTube for something to read? Or is that just the start of the iceberg? It depends on what you're looking for. Um, a lot of my friends, for instance, look, uh, watch... Uh, For instance, film reviewers, um, people who are talking about film history, and they will recommend, by the way, if this is interesting to you, here's a book that was written about it by this, you know, dead French person. Uh, And then that leads you to reading that book and going through the rabbit hole of ending up studying Oob Ewerks and why he was so important to Disney's animation studio in the very early 1930s. Um, So there's a lot of different rabbit holes from YouTube that will lead to that. A lot of um, kind of sidebars from podcasts, sidebars from other people. A lot of people get promoted now by word of mouth. Uh, I hear about a lot of the books I want to read from my friends who are reading books already, but a lot of that gets recommended to them through what they're already reading on their Kindle, their tablet, uh, Amazon, Nook, I don't remember, but there's so many different ways to read digitally now. That's the preferred stream. Right. I mean, and a lot of these companies, Amazon, will, um, you know, they, they deliberately make a lot of recommendations because you'll buy more stuff. Um, I was going to say, as as somebody who actually has stuff out on Amazon, and Chaz does too, and ideally John others will, I, I wanted to throw a random plug out there. If you have a friend that has stuff on Amazon, it is the best friend thing you can do to go out there and give them some kind of rating. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't matter what you give. You can say one star, Dave's work sucks. <laughs> And that actually still helps Dave because they have a certain algorithm that counts the number of people that have engaged. And what they care about is mass engagement. The same way that people, you know, hate watch the Patriots on football season, people will say, ah, there have been over a thousand people that have read this and they all hated it. Why do they hate it so much? (laughs) And that's definitely something that you see in the fandom sphere, especially as you'll find a lot of artists, uh, both visual artists and writing artists who are constantly asking people, please leave a comment, please leave a Mm -hmm. like or a kudo or any way that there is positive reinforcement through that platform, Mm -hmm. just so they get some type of feedback. Because a lot of times somebody will read through, you know, sometimes over 10,000 words, sometimes over 60,000 words and will not say anything and leave. And it's a big engagement problem in our community. Right. Well, I I mean, uh, we live in an attention economy in some ways right now, and it's been said over and over in the media, right? Well, well, very much, I would say, because things are free, and this is reminding you, those of you that go out and read novellas that are you find for free online, 
you didn't pay money for it, but we would like you to pay in a little, well, you know, thumbs well, up or, or a kudo. You're, or a, you're, you're paying with your data. You are paying to, with your data. To well, Amazon or Google or anybody like that. And I will say also that especially in the in the fandom community, it's a very thin line that some fan fiction writers will ask for donations through their Patreon for their content because sometimes if they get popular enough, it will become their full-time job to write for these fandoms, but they can't ask for um, access to the work because of copyright law. So if they have people who support them through monthly donations, but it's not filtered through, pay me for my good omens fan fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, then they can kind of get some support through that. Yeah. This, uh, I, Judith has been here often enough, our AP lawyer, that I feel obliged to say out loud, of course, one would never sell one's work that was based on somebody else's work because that gives any copyright infringement. However, we did have a talk about fanfic and the legalities of that here and there. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you want to talk about ways that people find writing and the attention economy... Fan fiction is a great segue into that because uh, I do personally know some people, and actually there was a viral Tumblr post about this exact issue uh, made, gosh, I don't know, maybe a year ago, saying that there were people who would um, be looking at a book that was, say, uh, maybe like... 20,000 words, not super long, uh, mm-hmm. maybe even 60,000. And just looking at it, they were like, oh my God, I cannot open this. It's too long. It's too much effort. But they'd find a fan fiction that was sometimes 800,000 words. And they'd say, I'm going to blast through this tonight because they were so invested in the characters and that that was less of a drain on their attention to read a digital story with no, uh, with less setup and uh, less of a commitment to learning the new uh, voice and oh learning the God, new setup. Oh my God, I feel so complete. This was actually one of the things that drove me away from fantasy was I'd open it up mm-hmm. and see all new words and all new everything <laughs> and an all new place. And was it a good political system? I didn't know. And did it make sense? Right. And it, it was often a barrier for me in some of the modern fantasy. So right. I really get that. And yeah. that's exactly the same issue that we're feeling with a lot of um, people in my generation reading fanfic especially mm-hmm. is that feeling feeling that you don't want to deal with all of the cacophony that's going on in daily life and you want to engage with a work that doesn't have any more work for it. Right. World building is great, but if you're going to build a world, you need an on-ramp. Exactly. And Star Trek and Star Wars already have the base that already knows the... the uh, world and 40 years worth <laughs> or 50 years worth <laughs> oh in Star Trek's case. Oh my god. So, so Snapchat. You'd, you'd mentioned Snapchat when we were discussing uh, setting this up early. Snapchat to me always looked like something like I took a picture and put five words. Tell me how Snapchat is more. Um, honestly, it's kind of rare to see it as more than that, uh, especially with people my age. Um, but one way I've seen it used creatively is uh, not only to produce visual art, which it's for, um, but also I've seen some people who use the word limit or the, the letter limitation inside of the uh, text box to fill it with a poem, kind of like people talked about Twitter poems, how they were interested in trying to engage with that 140 character limit until mm-hmm. it got doubled, of course. Right. But playing with the limitation is something that humans will gravitate towards. Video game designers talk about it all the time of they have huge limitations and they have to get really creative in order to work with what they've got. And so uh, Snapchat has that tiny little window to fill with poetry and then you get to put a photo underneath it to help evoke the feeling and really bring that feeling out. So there's a lot of poetry, very short narratives, of what, course. What is the 
character limit on a Snapchat? Um, I don't remember right now because it did get expanded. Uh -huh. So it was very small, about the same as Twitter for a while, and it got much larger recently, okay. so it can fill a whole photo now. But the, the point is to play with what is visually pleasing on top of whatever you use as the base. I see. Um, so especially because the format of uh, a Snapchat feed is called stories, some people will use that to create narrative across the different pages of a story. Mm -hmm. So I've seen some people do some very creative stuff with that. Now, I was looking when we talked about these, Tumblr was one that I had a friend. So I looked at the demographics for Tumblr just for fun. Oh, yes. Interestingly, it's younger. Absolutely. A, a lot of the other ones, the Insta Instagram and Snapchat and, and YouTube, those those all, the biggest demographic groups started at 18. Tumblr started at 16 and is multimedia. So a, a lot of people go there, but they also spend a lot of time because Instagram and Snapchat were, you know, three to five minutes, three to eight minutes. Uh, Tumblr, apparently they spend half an hour or more. So what goes on on Tumblr? So many things. I actually, I wanted to talk about this the most because this is also where I spent a good chunk of my, my wasted youth. Um, I have practically owned real estate on Tumblr since 2011. And I can tell you the reason why it's engaged me for so long is because there are so many possibilities. It started out as a blog host where you could post text, photo, and video, and just a few seconds of video. And then it expanded to be so much more. Um, I know there are a couple of Tumblr accounts that are uh, specifically for writing prompts. People will do, uh, there's big challenges that get spread through viral photos of, of um, things to do on every day through this month related to poetry or drawing or story or people who are doing uh, NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month uh, through November and they have prompts for what to do with your writing through those days. There is a huge amount of work of multimedia storytelling done through that medium especially. And frankly, a lot of people, especially in my age, actually got started writing on Tumblr through uh, Tumblr roleplay as well as Tumblr poetry and story and even a few of us in songwriting um, and some of that even came from offshoots of the tumblr roleplay scene what what is tumblr roleplay what is there sounds uh, like a mush well <laughs> and i'm very into mushes so tell me about tumblr well, roleplay. do you use do you use all the media well, uh, funny you mentioned Mush, actually, when I was listening to the first couple episodes of your podcast and I was hearing you talk about your intro to writing being through Mush and Mud, I hadn't heard of that system. But after you described what it was, I said, wow, I've been doing that for a decade. <laughs> um, it, you know, multi-paragraph storytelling through role play of saying, okay, uh, a lot of a lot of posts on Tumblr, you'll see it's actually turned into kind of a joke now, will have the title of Open RP, and then there'll be a picture of a character, and then there'll be a little quote of what this person does, you know, uh, so-and-so walked in and sat down and sipped their coffee as they mm -hmm. stared across the room. What are you doing here? How did you find me? And then somebody else would, um, Tumblr uses reposting kind of like Twitter does, so you'd reblog it, and then that would allow you to write your own expansion underneath it, and you'd use that format. Some people would also have um, a photo post that would help expand on that visually, like they'd post pictures of what that scene looked like or the relationship between those characters through um, aesthetic boards, which are small photo collages. I do those all the time. Um, 
Some people would uh, post music that reminded them of those characters, but a lot of that was that same mush and mud sort of style of almost writing a book per character perspective. Oh. Neat. I was going to say, kind of want to go take a look at it now. It did kind of die. I will say that if you are... <laughs> I, I know, but Of if, course it did. <laughs> nothing good lasts. Well, um, to be honest, I, when I started in 2011, it was kind of a burgeoning scene. It was getting ready to become really big. And um, by the time I fully got invested in 2012, it was a huge, huge scene. And a, like thousands and thousands of accounts were doing this and getting connected and building expanding worlds. You'd have Lavender Brown from Harry Potter flirting with James Potter in one scene. And then the next minute, you'd have Adam Milligan from Supernatural helping her run from the police while they're her friend Penelope from Criminal Minds was cooking her brownies in the next role play all on the same account. So uh, we there was this huge amount of cross-pollination of fanfiction made by these fanfics, but of course within like 2015 there was a lot of drama and then some things exploded, a huge number of people left or decided to no longer be role play accounts, and by the time I came back by 2016-2017 there's only a few people left, but the people who do it are really dedicated. There's a lot of work in it. There could be some mashups though. I mean if Madeline Robbins is ever listening to this, she and I used to have a joke saying that uh, her investigating character was a, a Regency era, um, not quite fallen woman, sort of a fallen woman. And my modern forensic investigator, what would happen if they both woke up in the same town in some third place? Could we write a, a fanfic of our own fiction together? And that amused us both greatly. And that's definitely some way that a lot of us expanded into our work. I had a couple of friends and I who found that we loved our characters so much that if we reskinned them and made them our own characters, and then we posted a fiction somewhere, we found that it worked well enough that we'd have this huge amount of chemistry and characters that felt like people because they were people, they were us. And if we could expand that and write our own stories, some people even got published with work that definitely started out as a uh, Sam Winchester meets Sherlock Holmes roleplay on Tumblr from 2012. Uh, I had a couple of friends who posted some interesting romances that I'm like, oh, that's your character Demetrius and my character Lawrence. How fun. Um, well, there was Shadows Over Baker Street was the beautiful combination of if uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and H.P. Lovecraft had ever gotten together and hung out drinking. Mm -hmm. Right. So and Cthulhu plus, you know, Sherlock Holmes is a beautiful combination. Well, and I'm sure everyone has heard this by now, but Stephanie Meyer was uh, a big influence on a lot of fan fiction writers, so much so that we ended up getting the book Fifty Shades of Grey based off of a fanfic somebody had written about her main characters, Edward and Bella. Yeah, so we, those, we heard about it. <laughs> we heard about it, and I'll admit that it's not a super great example. A lot of people point out the flaws in that, but some people have said this really reads like a fan fiction, and uh, I, I do take that as a little bit of a, a jab, but I will say that, you know, that's where some of those people got their start, and it, there is good fan fiction out there, and don't let that bar you from seeing some amazing work. <laughs> I was just going to say, can you, can you come up with another example to get the taste out of our mouth? <laughs> Um, I, I don't know a lot, but I think also there's a lot of fan fiction writers who try very hard to distance their work from where it started because they don't want to get sued. Mm -hmm. And they also want to make sure that everything has its own flavor so that way they can play with the creativity more and not limit themselves to what mm -hmm. the original worlds were. Yeah, for instance, if you say it, we'd, 
I don't really want sparkly vampires, for instance, or extremely possessive, but I like the idea of the interrelationship of characters. So much like last week they were talking about, I can't do Star Trek, but I can do man through the stars in a space opera because... That's how we get Forbidden Planet. Yes. Everybody gets space opera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, there's also, you know, as much as we're sitting here and reaching you guys all through podcasting, there's Podfic. And Podfic is fun, so... Absolutely. I'm going to say my favorites were uh, um, Welcome to Night Vale, storytelling in small episodes, and Wolf 359, and Ursula Vernon's Hidden Almanac. Do you, do you have favorite stories you follow, Vary? Well, first I want to clarify that Podfic is a very specific term in fan fiction, and that there are narrative podcasts, and that's different. Okay. Um, so you can have narrative podcasts like Welcome to Night Vale and... Um, other works in the, the, ta- the Tannis tapes and things like that, which are really fun and interesting. But Podfic is specifically when you have a person on a forum like fanfiction.net uh, back in its heyday or archive of our own uh, AO3 to the younger demographic, those of you who know that, um, will access Podfic as an audiobook version of a already published fanfiction. And if you do that without asking the author first, so help you God. But... Um, <laughs> I'm actually currently being commissioned to make a podfic out of one of my friends' uh, very long Star Trek fan fictions at the moment, which I'm very looking forward to working on. As far as narrative podcasts go, um, I know a lot of my friends got started with narrative podcasts through Welcome to Night Vale, and a couple people started realizing that there were some... uh, things in the writing they weren't big fans of or weren't fond of the writing style and there were things they wanted differently in it. And so we had um, a a couple of things like Alice is Not Dead. We had a couple of things like the Tannis tapes um, and other supernatural narrative podcasts are usually the favorite. But I know a lot of my friends don't so much do the narrative storytelling podcast straight. A lot of us prefer things like D&D podcasts, the collaborative storytelling. Uh, I know of, of probably anyone who's around my age who's listening to this will almost certainly know of The Adventure Zone, which is a D&D uh-huh. podcast made by uh, the McElroy family, which uh, a lot of us follow through many different channels of their blogs, their uh, YouTube channels, all of their different podcasts. There's so many of them. Um, and of course, their gaming channels. So you have Clint McElroy, the father, who's playing their dwarf druid. You have the dungeon master Griffin. And uh, there's... So, so let me ask for, for some of who haven't heard about this is this basically putting a microphone in the middle of your D&D group and just playing the game because I I've he- I heard there was one that my friend Trish follows and probably Critical Role uh-huh, which is the other big one okay um it is to a certain extent but it's a big heavy focus on uh, specifically the adventure zone focuses a lot more on the story and you get uh they play a bit more Calvin Ball with the rules specifically for narrative delight do they edit the story after they've generated it there is definitely some gameplay in the story uh in the in the podcast i should say mm-hmm. um that you can every once in a while hear them rolling dice and going i rolled a four. Oh no <laughs> um but if you want you know there are definitely some podcasts like critical role is very much we are playing the game we are sitting down for four mm-hmm. hours and you are going to see you know the dungeon master matt mercer do all of the math and you're going to see all of these people do every single mechanical thing and it's one of the reasons why a couple of my friends don't watch critical role anymore is because it's a little too meaty and so uh the adventure zone is usually the other favorite because it's a little lighter and easier to get into and more story yeah. heavy 
I guess I, this is one of the things that my generation doesn't really understand is like, why would you watch somebody else play role playing <laughs> or watch somebody else do online gaming? I mean, there's there's leagues. It's a, it's a sport now. I mean, I don't understand mm-hmm. it. I, I understand there's kids in Korea who've made money sitting and playing, you know, Minecraft for people or people or who make Fortnite. a living doing it. And I still don't understand it. Well, and to tie that back into writing, um, I find that the people who are watching like Minecraft and League of Legends are more interested in the sports aspect of it and anybody who watches sports but is younger than 30 is probably going to be willing to do that more because they enjoy watching it with the same fervor of watching sports whereas mm. people who are watching D&D or watching more narrative games like Firewatch are more likely to be watching because they want to absorb the story. So you have things like Amnesia the Dark Descent. A lot of people watched that because they wanted to see what was the spooky secret in the house, but they weren't willing to play through it because it was prohibitively expensive or they wanted to experience it but weren't willing to get scared because of how scary that game is. So there's definitely an element to that. Yeah. Well, that makes me feel better because I'm not particularly a sports fan either, so that might be why I don't get it. But Possibly. I, it sounds I, like... I love sports, so... Uh-huh. Well, if you I, don't get it, then you have to make up your own excuse. I was going to say, and, and the last one that I brought up where I wanted to bring up was... The biggest demographic for Instagram is males between 18 to 24. So, and then a lot more, there's 75% of all users between 18 to 24, a lot of global Instagram. Instagram is really weird. I was traveling over in <laughs> Venice and our landlady for the Airbnb said, oh, if you have any problems, just we'll, we'll Instagram and Snapchat back and forth which was, to me, the why are we not texting or emailing or (laughs) (laughs) using any of these other common communication methodologies. Mm -hmm. Telephone? So Instagram, boys 18 to 24, huh? Um, I think that's less to do with... the narrative, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of people who are doing writing on Instagram as much. It's definitely more, the point is to share photos. And actually, when you go onto a platform like Twitter or Tumblr, the photos will be large, but the caption will always be visible. Instagram's main gist, if you go to someone's Instagram profile, it's all a grid of just pictures. You don't see captions unless you specifically engage with that photo. So I think a lot of that comes from possibly flex culture, which is trying to show off um, uh, wealth or uh, an attitude or an appearance, um, and also the idea of uh, influencer culture and trying to follow your favorite artists or pretty models or things like that. I'm not sure if that has... I'm not sure if there's a whole lot we can talk about on a writing podcast about specifically the demographic of that. Um, but it's... I think it might be an interesting way to say if you're... And, and this, to me, it comes back to the, all right, I want to make money as a writer and I would love to give up my day job one day in this, a torrid career in IT security and just be a writer full time. But part of that is how do you reach your audience? So as I go to big writing groups and they're talking about writing for young A and writing for middle readers and, you know, how do, how do I reach the right demographic? There's a lot to look at in terms of which social media platform are you going and pushing and how you parcel it out. Uh, because there is something that you mentioned that was very big. How are people accessing your media? You, you were briefly talked about phones and Kindles and things. 
And I wanted to say, if that's what they're doing, if that's how people are reading books now, then you've got to be able to get that way. You have to go digital. And another thing that I will say is that if you want to reach a lot of people in my demographic, you have got to read up on your social issues because it's one thing that people my age will tear apart their media, their favorite media, because if it's not doing a good enough job of representing who they want to be or if they screw up in a way that they're not even thinking through the implications of something that can lead to a lot of people coming through your for your throat because it it's we will not settle for half representation we will not settle for not thinking through your applications or oh well they tried because we have so many alternatives. There are so many different ways to go about this. And if you have a black character who's, um, you know, praised for having a big vocabulary in your show and somebody reads that as saying, oh, well, you're exceptional because, you know, you can speak well and other black people can't. That is a horrible thing and you will get torn down. And we had a big, big television show that got ruined because people were not engaging with it anymore. And that got a lot of fan fiction writers blowback for writing for it. Yeah. Well, let me then speak to that and say once again thank you from my generation to yours <laughs> for the savage mockery of misguided uh, marketing campaigns that you have given us because uh, yeah. awesome it's led to some interesting commercials and um you know books and things where they're trying to reach my demographic but they go about it in such a way that it comes off as insulting mm-hmm. and it's really important to just actually talk to people who you want to reach talk to the kids if you want to reach the kids talk to the elementary schoolers if you want to write for elementary schoolers get to know who you want to write for. well i think that's key get to know them because a lot of these bad marketing campaigns are just trying to fake it right that's that's where they get into trouble well and you get a lot of the the trying to speak millennial which Uh is always kind of an interesting demographic when you have people who are writing books for people my age Mm. and when they don't talk enough with people who are major they just go oh well they talk like that then it's i don't want to say it's a it's a harmful stereotype but it definitely makes us not want to engage with you we'll make fun of you and we'll walk away Mm -hmm. because we have things like oh god um adam that movie that's coming out soon which does a horrible job of representing transgender people uh, across the board and the idea that uh you know lesbians can be turned straight if only a straight man will have sex with them while pretending to be a lesbian is a horrible thing so you know we i, I haven't even heard of this <laughs> now i already, already know i don't want to see it, it. Yeah. right but that's a writing flaw of not figuring out who your demographic is, not talking to the people you want to represent well. And frankly, there's a lot of that feeling of just if you don't feel like you've actually figured out how people would like to be represented, and if you don't talk to people who are in that community and how they would like to be written, you end up with these weird, vicious parodies that end up doing more harm than good. I was going to bring up a really old example of somebody who, Dave's generation, sorry Dave, that did it right. You're in my generation. Don't give me that crap. Um, Charles Schultz did not have a black character until Franklin. And he was asked about why don't you have any black kids? And he's like, I am not from this. I don't want to get it wrong. And it was a really beautiful letter he got from a lady who said, anybody who just... Have him be like any other kid. Have him say, we don't know how to treat him. Crap, you're new, you're different. What do you want, Franklin? And that was the way to do it because he didn't just automatically go out there with assumptions and throw in a black kid to Mm -hmm. a white neighborhood 
in the way that he'd grown up with. Right. He actually waited and then asked. Yeah. What I, and what, so, what I wanted to say was, um, I think this is a new manifestation. What you were just talking about, Alice, is a new manifestation of an old problem. And you gave a perfect example, which is, um, I mean, transgender issues are now in the forefront. And, oh, gee, you know, you've got somebody writing from a different gaze who um, is not, not getting it. That's an old story. It, it leads to some really big problems. As someone who's gender fluid myself and who doesn't always use female pronouns or male pronouns or, you know, I tend to use they, them pronouns for myself, um, it can be very insulting when you have people talk about, like, the movie Split, the very famous M. Night Shyamalan movie that came out not that long ago. And people said, oh, there's a gender fluid character. And I said, uh, I think you'll find that the character you're talking about is someone who's been diagnosed with disassociative identity disorder, which if any of that person's facets or personalities are gender fluid, that's one thing, but that is not a general blanket term you can use for that. And also it's a frankly a very harmful portrayal of people with DID. A lot of people I know who have DID found it incredibly insulting and will not watch any of that director's films anymore because they wanted to get out of that scene. It's not healthy for them. This has been great. I hope this has been really useful for everybody out there. How do you reach young people? What are you going to, your routes to market? Um, I love the appreciation that we have for the different characters. Talk to people. Go talk. I mean, I hate to say it, but talk to the audience is not always death. Figure out if that's, your, if you're, that's going to be your demographic. We all thought kids weren't reading, and I think this definitely proves that kids are reading. They're just not reading in the way that we're used to. Well, do your research. Yeah, and, and reach out to well. a community. There is always a community to reach out to. Yeah, and I will put links at this. Consult with Alice on interesting things we've mentioned here on the website. Our website, of course, is as you know, www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we answer emails, so if anybody would like to write to us or any of our guest hosts, we'd be delighted to uh, hear and read your letters online. By all means, ask me questions. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by other hosts. Our main web support page is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider and guest host today is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on Many Hats Music. Today's sponsor was Watch Your Assumptions. They will bite you in the ass. 